0: some people have used Christ's words to try to prove one of two things concerning the timing of His resurrection. First, there are those who do not believe in the truthfulness of Scripture and they look at Christ's words and they say, aha, here's the proof. Jesus was mistaken about the timing of His resurrection because they say, if He died on Friday afternoon, then a Sunday morning resurrection would not be three full days and three full nights that he spent in the tomb. Now, that's a very significant issue. Because if Jesus was wrong about the timing of his resurrection, then how can we be sure he was right about anything else? If you cannot trust him to be accurate about this, I mean, the resurrection is rather significant, but even if it was just anything, If you cannot trust Him to be accurate on one thing, how can you trust Him to be accurate on salvation? Our eternal destinies hang in the balance with this.
1: Welcome to Verse by Verse, featuring the teaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today Pastor Steve is going to once again talk about the symbolism of Jonah and the great fish and how that ties into Jesus Christ. One question Pastor Steve will start to answer today is this, how do we respond to questions concerning Christ's statement about the timing of His resurrection? Jesus spoke the truth in all things and that includes the timing of his resurrection. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was accurate about his prediction concerning the fact that he would rise on the third day. Since that's the case, we have to ask if we have been wrong about a Friday death of Jesus. How does Friday afternoon to Sunday morning add up to three days and three nights? Since three full days and three full nights would come out to a Monday resurrection. Let's find out.
0: It is very clear by this statement that Jesus believed in the historical accuracy of the story in the Old Testament about Jonah and a fish that swallowed him. That's important to understand because... Liberal theologians have scoffed at this story about Jonah being swallowed by a fish for for years. And they've said that uh, obviously it's not to be taken literally. That is humanly impossible for a man to be swallowed alive by a fish and then survive for three days. And there are some evangelicals, Bible believers, who have tried to answer these scoffers by delving into the past and coming up with some remarkable incidents of men in history who were swallowed, Alive by a huge fish and they did survive. And you know what, there, there are examples of that in history. But I say it's so unnecessary, so unnecessary to, uh, to do that. It's not necessary because the reason we should believe in such an unusual event happening to Jonah isn't because some other men in history experienced similar experiences, making it sound humanly credible and feasible. That's not why we believe it doesn't matter if anybody else experienced what Jonah experienced. We believe it because scripture says it and Jesus Christ confirmed that it literally happened just the way it was presented in the book of Jonah. That ought to be sufficient for us that Jesus Christ believed in the historical accuracy of Jonah's experience and said that it was a prophetic picture of his own resurrection. So it all, you don't need these other things to strengthen your faith. You don't need this to convince unbelievers. Jesus said it. He believed in it. Now the second significant truth gets a little deeper than that. It's related to what Jesus said about Jonah and his own resurrection. And it's this, that some people have used Christ's words to try to prove one of two things concerning the timing of his resurrection. First, there are those who do not believe in the truthfulness of scripture and they look at Christ's words and they say aha here's the proof Jesus was mistaken about the timing of his resurrection because they say if he died on Friday afternoon then a Sunday morning resurrection would not be three full days and three full nights that he spent in the tomb now that's a very significant issue because if Jesus was wrong about the timing of His resurrection, then how can we be sure He was right about anything else? If you cannot trust Him to be accurate about this, I mean, the resurrection is rather significant, but even if it was just anything, if you cannot trust Him to be accurate on one thing, how can you trust Him to be accurate on salvation? Our eternal destinies hang in the balance with this. If He was wrong about one thing, He could be wrong about Others. Very significant issue. Now that's what unbelievers, unbelievers who do not trust the um, accuracy, faithfulness, inspiration of scripture say. And then there are believers who who do certainly believe that Christ could never make a mistake and the Bible is perfectly accurate. There are some believers who respond to this criticism of Christ's words being inaccurate by saying that Jesus certainly wasn't mistaken. And to prove this, they go to great lengths to show us that he did not die, they say, on Friday, but rather on Thursday, which they say would then perfectly fit a Sunday resurrection because it would allow for three days and three nights in the tomb. Now, you may think, oh, probably some fringe believers hold to that. Not so. There are many uh, very notable Bible teachers who hold to this—this this was actually what I was taught at Moody Bible Institute in my theology class. The teacher believed that Jesus died on a Wednesday and uh, and taught us that. Now, how do we respond to these questions concerning Christ's statement about the timing of his resurrection? Well, first of all, we affirm with dogmatism that Jesus was not mistaken about how long he would be in the grave. He is the truth. He spoke the truth in all things, and that includes the timing of his resurrection. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was accurate about his prediction concerning the fact that he would rise on the third day. Now, if that's the case then, then we have to ask, have we been wrong about a Friday death? Should we be celebrating Good Thursday rather than Good Friday? I don't think we've been wrong. In spite of what I was taught at Moody, I don't don't think we were wrong on that. Then how, the question is, and how does Friday afternoon to Sunday morning add up to three days and three nights? Since three full days and three full nights would come out to a Monday resurrection. We know that that's wrong. We know that the Bible teaches Jesus rose again very early on Sunday, right after the Sabbath, which was, and still is, by the way, Saturday. Saturday is always the Sabbath, not, not Sunday. Well, the answer, folks, it lies in how the Jewish people calculated days. See, the Jewish people considered a part of a day as a whole day. In other words, when they spoke of a day, they weren't necessarily referring to a full period of 24 hours. The Jewish Talmud said this, and I quote, Any part of a day is as the whole. Now that's what they said. It's really no different when you think about it than what we would say today if we say to someone, I'll spend the day with you. I'll spend the day with you. We certainly don't mean that we're going to be with someone the entire 24 hours of that day. But we mean only part of that day. It it could be just a few hours. Yet we refer to it as a day. I'll spend Saturday with you. We We don't mean that wherever you go for 24 hours, I'm there. I hope we don't mean that. And we don't. However that explanation does not seem to satisfy some people because they point out that Jesus also said that he would be in the tomb not only three days, but also three nights. And if you add this up, they say he wasn't in the tomb three nights, he was only in it two nights, Friday night and Saturday night. Well, once again... That's really not a problem. It's not a problem if you understand the way Jewish people, ancient Jewish people reckoned time, was that they considered one day and one night to be a single unit of time. They did not divide it. In other words, three days and three nights didn't necessarily mean a full 72 hours, but rather it was an idiomatic expression that simply meant any part of three separate days, just, just units that were together. And so, I want you to go through this to affirm the absolute accuracy of the Word of God. You can trust the Scriptures and especially the words of Christ. And certainly all Scripture is inspired and everything Jesus said is just as inspired. Christ's words concerning Jonah and his own resurrection are absolutely accurate. Now that's very important, not only for us, but it's very important, it was very important for those Scribes and Pharisees in the nation Jesus spoke about because Jesus told the men that asked him for a sign that their eternal destinies hinged on how they would respond to the sign of his resurrection. If he's wrong about the resurrection, then he can't be trusted about their eternal destinies. You see, in, in not receiving any of his previous miracles as signs, he knew that these men and the nation would also Reject his greatest sign. What was his greatest sign? It was the sign of the resurrection. Because that is the greatest proof and the primary sign that validated his deity. It proves him to be the Son of God. And because they would continue to reject him as Messiah, ultimately they would receive eternal judgment. And that's spelled out for us in verse 41. Now we move on. The men of Nineveh, Jesus said, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they, meaning the men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now since Jesus has just spoken about Jonah, it's very natural for him then to speak about the the citizens or the individuals, the people that Jonah Preached to, and that's the he called it the men of Nineveh. Actually, means the the whole citizenship of the city of Nineveh. And why is Jesus doing this? Here's the point: in order to show these these Jewish people how hard-hearted they were and their followers, in light of how responsive these pagan Gentiles were to Jonah, that's his point. Jonah preached to them and they repented. I preach to you and you don't repent. I'm greater than Jonah. That's an absolute understatement. Jesus pointed out something that every Jewish person in that audience understood because they read they were familiar with the Old Testament. They all knew from the book of Jonah that after Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, he preached a message of judgment that they were doomed. Unless they repented. God would judge them unless they repented of their wickedness. And we're told, and I won't, I won't take the time to go there, but you should make a note of Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. It says that all the citizens of Nineveh repented. All of them, led by their, their king. They repented. That really is the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. Not the fish swallowing the man. The greatest miracle is that an entire city of Gentile pagans, and I might add wicked and cruel pagans, repented in response to Jonah's preaching. Jonah, who was a disobedient, reluctant, rebellious prophet. That's the greatest miracle of this book. And the point that the Lord is saying is that they, they were so spiritually disadvantaged. And you, Israel, are so, you have so many advantages And yet they were responsive and you were not. What are some of the spiritual disadvantages that the Ninevites had? In other words, what what didn't they have going for them? First, they were extremely ignorant about the one true God of Israel. They didn't know a whole lot about him. They didn't have the word of God. Probably had never heard a message from a prophet or a Bible message. Until Jonah showed up. Secondly, even by pagan standards, the Ninevites were extremely wicked in their behavior. They they actually were noted for being exceedingly cruel and brutal in the way that they treated their enemies. In fact, I I wouldn't even say some things from the pulpit about how they treated their enemies. The brutality that they inflicted on others. They really had taken their depravity not to a new high, but to a new low. Even by pagan standards. Third, the man who preached to them, Jonah, as I said, he did so reluctantly. He actually despised these people. Do you realize that? That's why when God called him to go to Nineveh, he got on a ship going the opposite direction. And in chapter 4, and I'll paraphrase it for you, after the Ninevites repent and God spares them judgment, Jonah, rather than rejoicing, he is angry at God. He wants to take his own life. That's what he says. And God says, are you justified in being angry? You know what Jonah says? I am. I am. Because I knew if I did this and preached to them, you're so compassionate, you would save these people. Now imagine, this is a preacher saying that. He hated these people. He wanted them to be judged. He felt they deserved it. They did deserve it. But God is merciful and compassionate and Jonah couldn't stand it. Finally, the message that they heard from Jonah was very limited It was not about God's love. It was about God's judgment. There's nothing said about His love. It's just a message of doom, calling them to repentance. And yet, with all of these spiritual disadvantages, the Bible tells us they did repent at the preaching of Jonah. And God not only physically spared their lives, but He also saved their souls for all of eternity. Now, some people question that because eventually Nineveh was destroyed. And they say, aha, see, it uh, it means they, they didn't all repent. But they did. That generation repented. It was years later that other generations came along and did not follow in their footsteps. And God did destroy the city. But not now. They did repent, just as Scripture says. Now, in contrast to the Ninevites, the Jewish people of Christ's day, what did they have going for them? So many spiritual advantages Unlike their pagan counterparts, these Jewish people were not ignorant of the one true God. They were the only nation entrusted, Paul tells us in the New Testament, with the oracles of God. They knew the truth. They were familiar with God's scripture. And the man who preached to them was so much greater than Jonah because he wasn't just a man. He was God himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who didn't despise people. He loved them He offered them hope, He proclaimed salvation to them, He performed compassionate miracles to validate Himself, yet in spite of all of these advantages, they refused to repent. And the point that Jesus is making to these Jewish leaders and the religious generation that followed them is that they're, they're hard-hearted. They're hard-hearted. Up to this point, they've rejected all of his signs, and he knows that they're going to reject the greatest sign, his resurrection, and therefore they will experience God's eternal judgment. And that's why Jesus said, and note this from the, from the verse we just looked at, he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn your generation. Now, the Lord didn't mean that the citizens of Nineveh are going to be the actual judges of the Jewish people in the sense that they'll be handing out eternal edicts. No, God will be the judge handing out eternal sentence. Jesus simply meant that at the final judgment known in Scripture as the great white throne judgment, the men of Nineveh will be there. And they're going to stand up and they will testify against the Jewish people of Christ's day and they'll say something to the effect of you had so much going for you and you rejected him. We had hardly anything. And we believed. And we believed. You have no excuse for your unbelief. No excuse for your unbelief. Because in spite of of our spiritual disadvantages, we repented at the preaching of Jonah. You had Jesus Christ, the one who is the judge right here, who's about to judge you. You'll stand before him. You had him in your presence. And you said no. You said he was a blasphemer. You said he was satanic. You are without excuse. We had so little, and yet we believed. And then God will sentence them to hell for all of eternity because they did not turn to Christ for salvation and they had the opportunity. But it won't only be the Ninevites that will stand up at the final judgment and accuse that, that generation of rejecting Christ. Jesus went on in verse 42 to give another example of a Gentile pagan who is very responsive to divine truth in spite of being spiritually underprivileged. Notice verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, who is the queen of the south? She is referred to in the Bible as the queen of Sheba, the queen of, of Sheba. That is not just an old movie made that is in the Bible. She's the Queen of Sheba, who we are told in 1 Kings chapter 10, she came from the far away country of the Sabians. That would have been about 1,400 miles southeast of Jerusalem. She came just to visit Solomon and to hear his wisdom. She had heard reports that this was the wisest man in the world. That this was a man of great riches because of his wisdom. This was a man who people uh, respected and heard from and he was just incredibly wise. So she was so interested in hearing Solomon's wisdom that Jesus said that she, she came from the ends of the earth just to listen to him. She brought her whole entourage to hear Solomon. But what the Lord is saying is that this pagan woman traveled all of these miles from the ends of the earth. To come and hear Solomon, but I who speak to you am God. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm in your midst. I'm telling you the wisdom of, of God's way of salvation and you don't want it. This pagan wanted Solomon's wisdom, which was divine wisdom, but it was given to Solomon. Jesus is wisdom. He doesn't get wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate. And he said, you're not interested. Therefore, she will rise up at the judgment, and she will testify against that generation that she came to hear just a man and was responsive to truth. We'll see the Queen of Sheba in heaven someday. But this generation had Jesus right there, heard him teach, heard his wisdom, and they said no. And she'll say, you're without excuse. Now, question is this. Why were these Jewish leaders and their followers so determined to reject Jesus? That's a major question that people have asked for years. Why with all their familiarity with Scripture, and why with their close proximity to Jesus and observing His miracles, why, why didn't more Jewish people in his day accept Him as Messiah? Why, why not? In fact, I remember my own mom years ago saying to me as I would witness to her, she said, you know... If Jesus was the Messiah, why wouldn't all the rabbis accept him? Now, eventually my mom did pray to receive Christ, but that was her attitude. If this is true, why why have our people rejected him over the years? Must be something wrong with him. Can't be anything wrong with us. But that's not true. What is it that caused the people of Christ day, who knew the Bible, far better than most of us know, why did they reject him? Well, the answer is really found in John chapter 3. The answer is found in John chapter 3. John, the apostle, spells it out clearly in John chapter 3 as he's quoting the Lord Jesus himself. John 3, verse 19. Jesus said, This is the judgment that the light, he is the light, has come into the world and men, note this, men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The reason that the highly religious people of Christ's day refuse to come to Jesus in repentance, in spite of all of their exposure to biblical truth, is simply because they love their sin and they refuse to forsake it. That, that's, that's why. Jesus said they love the darkness of their own behavior... And rather than the light. So they refused to come in repentance because he is the light. And they didn't want him to expose their evil hearts and evil deeds. Because in coming to Christ, that is necessary. You must repent. You must turn from the darkness of your deeds and turn to Christ for a new life in him. Folks, that's the bottom line reason why those who are very religious today... React so passionately against Christ. I mean, why everybody does, but especially religious people. It's because they want to hold on to their sin. They love their sin. They're very comfortable in their sin, and they're frankly, they're very comfortable in their religious environment. That's a very secure feeling to have. All kinds of outward legalistic rules. Anybody can do those rules, but see, religion never touches the heart. Religion doesn't convict you of sin. Religion doesn't put its finger on your pride and lust and jealousy and covetousness and malice and say that's wrong. Religion says if you perform outwardly so as to impress others with just a list of do's and don'ts, you're fine. And that's very comfortable. That's very secure. Nobody really, unless the Lord works in their heart, wants that to be shaken up in their lives. They love their sin. They hold on to it. They'll continue to reject Christ Unless the Lord does a work of grace in their heart. So, really, that is the first characteristic of religious unbelief that Jesus taught. It rejects Christ in spite of all the evidence. There is a second characteristic of religious unbelief. We obviously won't spend as much time on this, but you have probably never heard anything quite like this because this is a unique passage. And it's this truth. The first characteristic of religious unbelief, it just rejects Christ, even though there's all the evidence there. The second characteristic of religious unbelief is that religious
1: unbelief leads to... Most love stories will touch the heart and leave the reader or viewer with a warm, fuzzy feeling. Today Pastor Steve highlighted a love story that was actually quite ugly, that is, the love a human heart has for sin. The reason the highly religious people of Jesus' day refused to come to Jesus in repentance is simply because they loved their sin. Jesus said they loved the darkness of their own behavior rather than the light. Jesus was the light and they didn't want Him to expose their evil hearts and evil deeds. That's the bottom line reason why people today react so passionately against Christ. They want to hold on to their sin. Those of us who have come from darkness to light should have hearts that are filled with compassion when we share the gospel with those who are still in darkness. The next verse-by-verse broadcast will be the last one in our series, so please join us next time for Verse by Verse.